Good morning, everybody. How are you? Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. Let's all stand and let's worship together.
please take a moment and greet those around you. Good morning, and welcome to La Jolla Community Church. Uh, we're so glad you're here with us this morning. We're an intergenerational church that likes to pray for each other. Uh, in your bulletin, there's a page where you can write down a prayer request. Um, we'd love to hear about something good going on in your life or something hard you're going through. And a team of people will be praying over you and um, thinking about you throughout the week and just lifting your request to the Lord. Um, and then also, if you're new with us or your first week or first couple of weeks, we'd love to get some information so we can reach out and say uh, hello, welcome. So you could give us an email address, a phone number, a name um, right in the bulletin. And then when the offering goes by, the bulletin rips right in half. It's very satisfying. You'll want to do it even if you're not writing anything down. Um, and then you fold it up and drop it in the offering. Um, and um, we have had a really fun fall, lots of fun events. Um, yesterday was Stories, a women's event um, where they got to tell... Uh, a couple of speakers told their story and then discussions at table groups um, and, a, and a good meal together. Um, I wasn't invited, but I heard it was really fun. Um, and, uh, and so next week we have um, two great events. We have um, on Sunday uh, the Alternative Gift Market, which is a, an event we do every year where we bring in some uh, nonprofit ministries who also make small items, um, handcrafted uh fair trade, unique items, and um, by buying their items, you support their work, and they do, um, they make a difference globally and locally, um, and so come shop, get your Christmas uh, shopping started early, and then you can uh, support a ministry at the same time, and then the other thing we're doing is collecting our, um, our Good Samaritan, or our, excuse me, our, our Samaritan's Purse um, uh, Operation Christmas Child uh, boxes, so if you haven't picked one up, we have, I think, 100 left, we've given out 200, love to give out all, all the remaining ones. And you, um, you just look in the box and there's really good instructions, clear ideas um, on age groups and what, what kind of items you can fill the box with. And then you bring it back next Sunday um, and your box is, uh, it goes all over the world. And just a really good opportunity to give a gift um, uh, in this season to someone you don't even know. And I actually think you can track the, um, the location of where the box ends up online. There's a um, I believe a number on here somewhere where you can track that. So kind of cool. Um, and then we're starting a new life group too. If you're if you're not in a life group, um, this is a great one to join. It's uh, uh, Thursday nights, six uh, 6.30 to 8 p.m. in the Surf Shack, which is the building in the parking lot, um, usually used by the junior hires, but this is a life group for all ages. And um, there will be a meal and a, a Bible study discussion of uh, world events as seen through the lens of scripture. Um, and Mike Hedman's leaving, leading that, so you could let him know if you uh, uh, would like to join the group. Um, and that's all the announcements for today. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Your hands formed the deserts. Your word filled the seas, vast and spacious, with water and life. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. All creatures look to you. 
to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. And in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. Lead me beside quiet waters. Refresh my soul. Guide me along the right paths for your name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Amen. Well, good morning. Thank you for waiting for me. That uh, usually doesn't happen. So we are continuing uh, our series in Ruth. We're, we're into week two now of Ruth, which, as you know, is an amazing story if you've read it at all. By the way, uh, every week we send out a thing called Read, Think, Pray, which gives you a heads up as to what we're going to do on Sunday. It's not a mini version of the sermon but it's enough uh, scripture to read to get you thinking about what we're going to be doing, and then some questions to get you thinking and reflecting on the, on the scripture, and then a guide for prayer. So that Rethink Pray, uh, every week will help you get ramped up for where we're going to go on Sunday. So here we are in, uh, in Ruth 2, and let me just uh, bring you up to speed if you weren't here last week. Ruth is a story, right? Ruth is a story. Don't you love stories? We all love stories. In this case, it's an absolutely historically true story, but it's written, it's set up as a story. And one of the great things about a story is that it catches you off guard. A great story pulls you in and then surprises you with the conflicts and the way the conflicts are resolved. Uh, that's what we love about stories. Um, a few years ago, actually more than that, um, probably 20 years ago, <clears throat> some friends uh, invited me over for dinner and I'm having dinner with them, and I think Jan and I were together having dinner with his family, and some of their friends uh, and family members were there from out of town, and they were talking about their wonderful day at Disneyland, and then they said, but the only downer was, we, after a day of Disneyland, all the pictures we took, we lost our camera. Now, you know, for a family at Disneyland, it's a big hurrah at Disneyland, that's a, a serious disappointment. I said, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Well, like a day later, I'm talking to my sister, one of my sisters, also, who lives in Newport Beach, and she said, oh my gosh, the Scudders were down from the Bay Area, and they had the best time at Disneyland, and, and, uh, and she started showing me some of the pictures 
that the Scudders had taken at Disneyland. And my, I'm, my jaw is dropping because I'm looking at the family that I just had dinner with the night before in the frame of so many of their pictures. So at one point in Disneyland, they're taking all these pictures. Well, there's this other family was there somehow unrelated to them, but it, like in the background and adjacent, and I'm cracking up. So I call up this family. I said, hey, by the way, uh, I, I have some pictures of your family in Disneyland. So it, it, it was just an interesting, like nothing of a story. Oh, we have to Disneyland and lost our camera. Became this really fun story. Uh, we love stories, right? Because they surprise us and catch us off guard. This last week, uh, some friends went to Disneyland to celebrate a birthday. And uh, the person whose birthday it was was very excited to go to Disneyland. And the person who they're married to was not so much excited. <clears throat> but of course, I'll go to Disneyland with you. You know, a very long day with a zillion people. And it's ridiculously expensive. And so they're standing in line waiting to buy a ticket at Disneyland. And this person comes up behind them and says, uh, are you waiting to get a ticket to get into Disneyland? They said, well, yeah, yes, I'm in the line. Well, follow me. It turns out this person works at Disneyland and gets them into Disneyland for free, which if, have you been to Disneyland lately? It costs about 400 bucks for two people to go to Disneyland for the day. That's just to get in. I think it's like 189 bucks for a ticket. And then if you want a glass of warm water, I don't know, whatever else, <laughs> a, a small cracker or something, it's, you know, 50 bucks. But so they, they, they're just blown away. They're like, oh my gosh. So they go into Disneyland and this is a, a wonderful coincidence just like the coincidence of my friends being in the same picture at Disneyland. And so as they go through the day, it's like they're living this charmed day. Every time they go up to a ride, somebody goes, oh my gosh, no, you guys come up here and, and, and get ahead of the line. And so they said it was the wildest, most wonderful day going to Disneyland. Now you hear a story like that, and you think, what an amazing coincidence, right? Or maybe not. And that's what we see when we read this story of Ruth. What a series of coincidences. So interesting how all these coincidences happen. Do you believe in coincidences? Or, trick question, right? I'm telling, ask me a trick question. Do you believe in coincidences? Or do you believe that God is always at work in your circumstances? They sound so similar. We all go through experiences where you go, oh my gosh, what a coincidence. How could that have ever happened? Uh, but if you take a step back from that, and say, well, wait a minute, if I believe in that, that the living God has invited me into a living relationship with him, do I have to rethink this notion of coincidences and rather say, I guess God is with me in all the circumstances of my life, uh, which, which begs the big question of how do, you how do you reconcile all the disappointments and tragedies and, and, and things in life? But, but, but right now, I just want you to get your head around this idea that, that do you believe that God is always at work in your circumstances? Now, it's easy to believe that he works in our happy circumstances at Disneyland. It's a lot harder to believe it when we are languishing in dismal land, right? And we've all been in dismal land. Uh, when, when the camera recording your wonderful day at Disneyland is stolen, it becomes dismal land, you know, oh. Or, or uh, when some horrible thing happens in your life, you think, where was God in this? Um, and so last week, we left Naomi and Ruth in dismal land. Uh, this woman, Naomi, and her husband, Elimelech, and their two sons, Malin and Kilion, uh, are in the, middle of, they're in the middle of a famine in Bethlehem, where they are part of a multi-generational heritage of people who live there. But this famine is so severe that people are going to starve to death if they all try to get food out of the land. So they say, okay, we'll leave. We'll leave, and we'll take a journey to a very, a much more challenging place across the Jordan River. So if you look at a map... 
Mediterranean Ocean, the country of Israel. Bethlehem is, is, is sort of in the middle by, by Jerusalem. And then just keep going this way, there's the Jordan River. And then there's uh, the, the world as they know it ends. Uh, because that's, that's where the Moabites live. And we would call that Jordan. So if you have a mental picture of the geography. So they're going to leave everything familiar to go to this place called Moab uh, to escape the famine. Uh, the boys meet some young women. They end up marrying. They end up being there for about a decade. Elimelech dies. Then both of the sons of Naomi die. So now you have three widows, uh, a Jewish woman and two Moabite women living in Moab. Then, and so they're, they're bereft because without uh, a man in your life, you're very much at risk. Uh, it's kind of flipped in our day. With a man in your life, you're very much at risk. But back then, if you didn't have a man in your life, you were very much at risk. And so um, they get into good news. The famine is over. And so uh, Naomi says, well, look, you know, my life is pretty much done, uh, but you guys have a life ahead of you. You stay here, go back to your families. And both women say, no, we don't want that. And she finally talks uh, Orpah into going back to her family. And she, she's trying to talk Ruth, but Ruth says, no. Where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Where you die, I will die. Your God will be my, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Beautiful thing that we see in Ruth 1. And then they, they head back. Ruth says, I'm going with you. Now, this is a big radical thing because for her, it's not only dismal land because she lives in the land of her birth and her husband's dead. And she's a very young woman, now a widow. She's going to a land where it's going to be inhospitable. That Mo, the Moabites were treated with contempt uh, by the Israelis. But she loves Naomi so much, she's going to go back. They go back, make this very difficult journey. It's only about 50 miles, but it's a really tough 50 miles. Uh, and so they go back, and all the people say, oh my gosh, uh, it, it, Naomi, is that you? <laughs> you look really beat up, you know, it looks like life has not gone well for you. No, it's me, but don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Naomi means pleasant. Mara means bitter. So we left the story at that place, dismal land, right? That, that what could possibly go wrong has gone wrong, and now they've come back home. So we pick it up. Um, in re what we'll see is a new day. If last week it was what was better becomes very bitter. We have a wonderful family. We're going to make do, and then we're going to come back. Oh, it's not going to be better. It's just bitter. It's a new day. We open it up in, in Ruth chapter 2. And so the way the chapter opens up, it's brilliant. The, it, it's, a, it's a true story, and yet the person telling the story is acting like a narrator, and there's a cinema, cinemagraphic kind of a theatrical way that they're putting the story together. So this first verse of, Ru of Ruth chapter 2 is a narrator's giving us a heads up, a narrator giving us a heads up that we know now what the people in the story don't know. So the narrator says, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Describing Boaz as a man of standing, uh, if you unpack those words, they have, they have all the meaning of very wealthy, very successful, uh, very much respected, um, a paragon of virtue, a person of high regard and integrity and above reproach. It's this incredible tribute in that one little phrase, a man of standing, in the, in the Hebrew it comes out as this incredible person, Boaz, is somehow related uh, to her. We know that, and we see that this is going to be part of the story, uh, but the people in the story that we're about to read don't know that. They don't know what's going to come, but we do. Don't you feel smart knowing that, right? And so the, the, the writer tells us, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, now, 
Ruth is a Moabite, but in this story, the word Moabite is constantly brought up. And we would say, that's interesting, but you told me the first chapter, I, I get that she's a Moabite. Why do you have to keep saying Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite? Because the writer wants every Israeli to hear this and have fingernails on a chalkboard. They are trying to make the point that, oh, by the way, did I mention she's a Moabite? Kind of like when Jesus told a story about a man who was beaten up and left for dead and, and all these religious leaders kept walking by him and finally a guy stops who happens to be a Samaritan, the people that the, that the Jews of, of that day hated, and he ends up being the hero of the story. So when the Pharisee who said to Jesus, um, tell me about righteousness, and he tells him this story, and then he's, Jesus says to the guy, so who do you think was the righteous one in the story? And he goes, uh, the guy that helped him. He can't even bear to say the Samaritan. So the Samaritans, uh, and like the Moabites, were, were reviled by the Jews. And so this Ruth the Moabite is invoked constantly to remind us that why is this so essential? And why is this part of God's word? Because God is going to make a big point about how he works in the world. So, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Uh, they've gone back to Ruth's turf, and Ruth hasn't even thought about, uh, she's so overwhelmed with her grief and displacement that she hasn't even thought about how to guide Naomi, but Naomi, uh, uh, Ruth, so, but Ruth says, I tell you what, I'll just go find a place to glean, because what brought them back was this harvest, the first harvest in 10 years, and this is a very big deal. Springtime, a barley harvest comes in, followed by a weed harvest. All the people are ecstatic and euphoric. The village turns out for the harvest. They've already had a big, giant worship service uh, to commemorate that this harvest is about to begin. In that worship service, they quoted the Bible two times in Leviticus and once in Deuteronomy, where the people thank God for the harvest as they gather to worship at where the, 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 the temporary temple at that point was called Shiloh before they'd moved it permanently to Jerusalem. All the people quoted the scripture that said, Lord, thank you for saving us from being refugees and slaves in Egypt. Thank you for delivering us and bringing us to this promised land and for feeding us and providing for us. And may we do likewise for the poor and the widow and the foreigner. The entire nation had just gathered to say those words and to make that commitment to God. And now, wouldn't you know, God sends a Moabite into our midst for whom these words were intended. Just a coincidence. I just thought I'd bring that out to your attention. So she says, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain. This is called gleaning. How many of you have ever gleaned before? Wow, we've got a handful of gleaners in this room. <laughs> I think we can have a glean team out of this congregation. I've done gleaning one time, um, and it just took me one time of gleaning to know that that was not in my future. It's a hard job. Uh, it's a hard job because uh, when, you, when you go through a, a field of grain or corn for the first time, it's pretty easy. Everything is right there. Gleaning, you got to look for it, right? But gleaning was this gift that God had given Israel, a gift in the sense that let the people glean because it reminds you what you were like when you were a refugee and a slave and an oppressed person. So anybody who was a widow uh, or poor or a foreigner was allowed to go to a field and glean. They could follow the harvesters. Now, typically, culturally, what would happen is you go up and ask permission, hey, is it okay if I glean? But really, the owner of the land couldn't deny you because he'd be denying God because the owner knows that it's God's land. So this is the big deal context that, that Ruth is just, she dived right in. 
And in her fog, Naomi's going, yeah, okay, sounds like a great idea, sure. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, any old field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, oh my gosh, what does that, what does that phrase evoke in you? As it turned out, that's how we say something was coincidental. Coincidentally, oh my gosh, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz. Oh my gosh, we know because the narrator's already told us that Boaz is going to be heroic in this story. And then we say, oh my gosh, look at that, what a coincidence. Who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, another coincidental kind of a phrase, just then, who knew? Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he says, and they respond, the Lord bless you. What does this tell us about Boaz? This incredible person, this personage, this presence, is so concerned about the people that he actually shows up to see how it's going. Everybody works for him in this setting, but he shows up, even though he has people managing it all, he shows up to greet the people. This is a very unique thing because it says that he is a person of the people. He's got a heart for the people. The Lord bless you. And the people spontaneously respond, yeah, and, and the Lord bless you. And what, what's going on here? It gives us a little glimpse into what Boaz's frame of mind was. The Lord is the one who owns this. The Lord is the one who owns me. The Lord is the Lord of you. He's the Lord of all of us. Uh, the Lord is here. This is his field. We are his people. What do you think happens when a community of people start talking that way? What do you think happens in a community, in a culture, when people start talking that way? The Lord is here. This is his field. We are his people. What does it do? It puts you in an immediate sense of gratitude, of expectation. You move from coincidence, I hope good things happen, to providence. There's a God to whom I turn. There's a God who's providing for me. This is, this is what's emerging now in this story. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? Uh, and this is a question that we still ask today. It's a good question to ask people. Ask any woman, you know, to whom do you belong? They love it. Women just love this, ask, this, this assumption and this question. It puts them right at ease, makes them feel safe and secure. Uh, you know, that's, for us, that's like fingers on a chalkboard. Are you kidding me? What do you mean? Who does she belong to? Are you out of your mind? Uh, no, uh, Boaz uh, was being considerate. She's a young Moabite woman. She's at risk. She's vulnerable. She qualifies. She would be, in her day, the poster child for human trafficking. Do with her what you will. She has no one looking out for her. She has no status, no rights, no standing. For us, it's deeply offensive, which it should be. Uh, and so what we see here with Boaz, uh, and, and the way it says, ask the overseer, this is... This, ends up being translated really as the young man who is the manager of the operation. He's talking to a young man about a young woman, and so he asks him, seeing this woman, and we're going to find out that Boaz knows, he thinks he, he probably has an idea who she is, but he wants to clarify it, and he asks the question, who does that young woman belong to? What is her tribe? What is her family? What is her context? What is her capacity uh, to function freely in this culture, not worrying about being taken advantage of. The overseer replied, she is the Moabite. Oh my gosh, there it is again. She's the Moabite who came from Moab, by the way. 
uh, with Naomi. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. So he confirms what we're going to find out that Boaz knew. He had a hunch, oh my gosh, I bet this is her. But they also reveal something, the overseer reveals something significant about Ruth. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. This means that after everybody has gone through and picked all the grain they want to pick, if I could just follow at the tail end of that parade. The sheaves she's responding, that she's referring to, would be after they've already gone through and harvested. The men would go through and cut off the stalks, leaving them behind for the younger, younger people, uh, uh, people of lesser status, women and, and kids, to come alongside, come behind, and they tie those sheaves up. And you've seen them stacked in a field, that iconic look of sheaves in a field. They did that so they wouldn't get wet and rot. Now, after all that's done, all the sheaves are accounted for. Do we, move, do we lose any sheaves? No, they're all tied up and they're all accounted for. If there's any grain left, if there's any grain left, could I go and look for that grain? That's what she said. Not presumptuous, not pretentious, not saying, you know, uh, um, I want to I I pick the sheaves before you get to them. So the, harv- the, the overseer is very impressed with this. And he goes on to say, she came into the fields and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Uh, you, those of you who've done uh, farm work know it's really, really hard. <clears throat> I told you my little brief experience of gleaning, calling up the, the did I tell you this already? Maybe I told the people last hour, um, but I'll tell you now. Uh, when I was a, a, a young pastor in Newport Beach, uh, I heard there was this, uh, or, or, uh, this organization when there were still lots of farmland being tilled in Orange County. Uh, that, that they would let people uh, come glean. And there was this organization of people who said, wow, we can feed the poor by organizing as a gleaning operation. And uh, that's what they did. And I heard about them. I said, that'd be great. Uh, that's exactly what kids in Newport Beach need to experience. So I recruited a few dozen kids to go, and we got permission. We went and gleaned in a farm. It was an amazing experience for those kids and for me. We had a blast doing it. Probably if we had tried to do it as a job, we'd have been fired. We were so inefficient and slow. Uh, but uh, we had that experience. When I was in high school, uh, I, I uh, got a job after school driving a tractor where, first of all, I just took the job because I didn't care that they were paying me all the dollar thirty-five an hour. What I wanted to do is drive the tractor because I didn't have a driver's license yet. So I said, you're going to let me drive a tractor? Yeah, I'll do that. And my job was to drive through these, field, through these fields and the watermelons or the pumpkins that hadn't been picked because they were not ripe yet, are now ripe. So I was just a solo operation. I'd drive through the field, stop, pick up the watermelons, the pumpkins that hadn't been picked because they were left over. Now they're ripe. I throw them in the back of this trailer, and I keep driving the tractor, just digging it the whole time. Then somebody told me that, you know, uh, they've, already, they've already harvested all the walnuts, but if you, as a kid, go up to the, to the farm owner and say, hey, could I uh, pick up all the ones that they didn't get in the harvest. Yeah, you could fill these bags with them and then take them to this guy who would weigh it and then pay you money. So I made money. Uh, it was a fortune. It was just like dozens and dozens of dollars that I produced from my, far- my field experience. But again, it reinforced the fact that this is not the career I want to choose. Farming is hard, hard, hard work. And this woman has just taken it with gusto. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, tells us about Boaz again. He's older and so can speak to her as a daughter, and as, it's a safe word. My daughter, I care about you. I have no plans you know, to put the moves on you. Uh, I care about you. 
Listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. He's giving you that, he's giving that fatherly advice, that uncle kind of advice, that dear friend of the family advice. He says, it's a dangerous world. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. Uh, with great dignity, she thanks him. She recognizes the gift he's given her. I'm in a, I'm in a foreign place that is, that is contemptuous of me as a Moabite woman. I have no standing. I'm a widow. Uh, I'm at risk and vulnerable, and you are giving me protection. You are giving me security. So she thanked him, and Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law. So he's, he had put two and two together by now. This is the woman I heard about who came back with Naomi. I've heard, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I know your story. And I don't think it's a coincidence that you're here. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. Very elegant way of saying a bunch of people who would rather you not be here. Who resent your presence. Who look down on you, belittle you, and you have no stature or status among them. Your people, the Moabites, are reprehensible to our people. Your people, the Moabites, were the result of Lot having incest with his daughter. And you are a tribe that then denied the people of God access to the promised land and made them walk around a longer way to get here on the way back from uh, servitude in Egypt. We know all about the Moabites. We don't like them. What he says is, he lifts this up as an honor. It's a trophy moment, right? I'm pre pre presenting you with an award. How you left your father and mother, your homeland, and came to live with the people who you did not know before. You're a woman of, 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 of high integrity, great love. And so he gives her standing. And he says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is the, just a, an amazing and preposterous picture of grace. God is for you, Ruth. There's no mistake and no accident why you're here. He is providing for you. Where do you take refuge? Under whose wings you have come to take refuge, he says to her. Where do you take refuge? Where do you look for strength? In our culture, we take refuge in materialism. We take refuge in uh, self-medication. We medicate with anything. We are an incredibly entrepreneurial nation when it comes to our capacity to medicate with anything and everything. Where do you take refuge? In your social standing, in your economic capacity, in your connections, your family's lineage? Maybe you would be a person, we had somebody last, last hour who could say, my family came over on the Mayflower. Wow. Poor family, I came over on a plane. I don't know what you guys were thinking about. Why, why are the Mayflower when you could have flown here, you know? Where do you take refuge? Where do you look for strength? When we invoke the name of Jesus, when we say, well, Jesus is all I need, is that because Jesus is all you've got? Or you've got a series of backups? Who's your primary sponsor? Who's actually paying the bills? Who's actually making it possible for you to be you? 
Is it some young person serving in a faraway place to defend the nation? Is it somebody who, is, who went out of their way to prepare you for life and help you avoid disaster? Think of you as, as a younger version of you and all the things that, that could have gone horribly wrong, but somebody said, that's probably not a good idea. And of course, in our young, immature thinking, we think, what could possibly go wrong? You tie, you, you tie the sheet properly, you jump off the roof, and it's a parachute. And it gets scarier from there. What do you mean? If, I sne- if, if, if my parents aren't home, I take the car and I drive it, what could possibly go wrong? If I smoke this dope, if I drink this alcohol, if I, whatever, right? Where do you take refuge? Who, who is giving you the, the capacity to function well in this world? This is the beautiful thing you see here. And so she says, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. I don't deserve this. And when she uses that phrase, speaking kindly, she's using this word hesed. In English, we'd say H-E-S-E-D. But in, in Hebrew, it's got a little ch sound to it. It's chesed. So it means the, it's, the, it's the kindness, the grace of God. Uh, and you've heard probably from... Um, um, that uh, famous passage out of Micah 6.8, he has told you, O man, what is good, to do justice, to walk with kindness, to, to walk humbly with your God. To do kindness is a key part of God's call on Israel. And that is the word that we use for grace. Be gracious, not just nice. Nice doesn't count for anything. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are substantive virtues. Niceness is not a virtue. Nice is because we have no way to name virtue, so we say, be nice. We're not talking about being nice. When she says, speak, thank you for speaking kindly to your servant, she, he, he's giving her and she's hearing words of hope, words of acceptance, words of affirmation and confirmation. You matter, you count. And it's going to be okay. And it's not a function of coincidence. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. Uh, have you ever have you ever dipped bread in wine vinegar? Remember that time in Tuscany? Remember that swanky Italian restaurant? Remember when your first time you went over to somebody's house for dinner and they said, "Here, here's some balsamic vinegar, some bread." And you go, "I'm going to dip bread in vinegar? Are you kidding me?" And then you did it. And you go, oh, "I like that." So it, it's a it's a great restorative. So they're sitting around. Hey, we're eating. Come join us. Really? Yeah, just sit with us. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Um, and, 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 and arguably, she can hear what he's saying. And they know that she can hear what he's saying. So it's like kind of one of these, right, from Boaz to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Hey, what do you do? Whoa, whoa, you deserve, you need to be back, back, back with the gleaners. This is where the harvesters are getting the, the best stuff. He says, let her gather among the sheaves, not the sheaves that are stacked up, the sheaves that are still attached to the plant. The best grain, the easiest and most accessible grain to glean. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles, right? The ones that are already drying. Pull some out and just put them on the ground because the gleaners could take anything that was on the ground. Or anything that was left standing, not cut, not cut off. Leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. And then she threshed the barley she'd gathered, which is another exhausting farm job. 
and it amounted to about an ephah. Would you think it would be about an ephah? I read this, and I thought, yeah, that sounds like about an ephah to me. Um, an ephah is 30 pounds of grain. That's a lot of grain. So add the 30 pounds of grain she's just been working all day to collect and now to thresh, you know, get, get it apart from the, the stuff you can't eat, and then the stuff she staved over from the, the snack, she's got a lot of grain to take home. So she carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw, saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she would eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? I mean, this is like super gleaning. This is not normal gleaning. Gleaning is a small amount to get you through a meal or two. This is like a feast for the week. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is, and then the music cues, it's Boaz. And Naomi is blown away. And it's almost as, as if you can imagine Naomi going, oh my gosh, coming into a right mind. Of course, I should have sent you there. Boaz. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. And she says this thing about Boaz, but it could be as if she's referring to God. She says, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Because by blessing Ruth, he's blessing Ruth and Naomi. And by blessing Ruth, he's blessing the memory of her deceased husband. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, who would otherwise provide for her but cannot, so Boaz will. And, and the son that has died, who would have provided for Ruth, but because he's deceased, cannot do that. And so he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. It, it speaks to Boaz, it speaks to the Lord. Isn't that amazing when you think about it, how God wants to use us to bless people? God is blessing people. But we become the thing that causes people to say, I wonder if that was a coincidence that so-and-so reached out to me. But if we're heads up about things, as we walk through our life, within our own family, within our own network of friends, within our own community and neighborhood, and we see opportunities to serve and bless people discreetly, perhaps anonymously, or if we have to, to be able to let them know we're going to do this, uh, we become this kind of a person who has not stopped showing the kindness, kindness to the living and the dead. We become like God to people. Not that we invoke that, oh, you know, I'm like God. But we reflect the very thing that God is doing, and how does he often deliver it through people? And this is the kind of person that Boaz was. Now, Naomi says, that man is our close relative. And she uses this very technical term in their culture. He is one of our guardian redeemers. He's not just a nice guy who, out of his excess, decided to help a young woman in a foreign country who's a widow and poor. There's something else going on here. She says, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Now, I put this slide up here so you can see the definition of this. This phrase, guardian redeemer, uh, goel, uh, is a legal term for one who has the obligation to redeem in, uh, a relative in serious difficulty and maintain family strength and continuity. There was no social security system. There was no safety net for anybody. So if a person became impoverished for whatever reason, ill health, a bad, a bad crop, they often have the option of, in a sense, renting themselves to somebody. It's, it's like a way of becoming a slave for a period of time. It, it, was like, it was like going to a pawn shop or a loan shark. And you go, okay, look, I'll be your slave, uh, but I need 400 bucks. I need however much. This happens every day in Africa, by the way. This happens every day around the world. People are in indentured servitude. Because they needed 40 bucks for a memorial service. They needed 40 bucks for a doctor's appointment. They needed 40 bucks for the wedding. And so they sell themselves into slavery. But in this case, people can't get out. In Israel, 
you could get out. If a person in your lineage, in your family said, I'm going to pay what they owe you, that would be, they would find out, oh my gosh, is so-and-so in indentured servitude? They'd go talk to the person who owned them and say, okay, I know this is a situation. I'm here to, to bail them out. That was a normative thing. And so Ruth the Moabite said, oh, is she a Moabite? Oh, that's right. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Ruth, you can stay here for the 50 days that we're going to be harvesting barley and then wheat from basically all the way through April to the end of May. You're covered. He's acting like a, a guardian redeemer. Now we're going to see in, in the rest of this story, in, in three and four, how this goes to a whole other level of, of complexity and also um, uh, obviously God's hand in, in the life of everybody involved. But Naomi says to her, uh, and now kind of getting back into her right mind, because uh, she just reported that, well, you know, Boaz said I should stay with his workers, and, and, and that, that phrase in Hebrew is the, the, the male workers. And now Naomi's kind of getting it together. She says, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him. Because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Naomi is now getting caught up in this, oh my gosh, God is doing something. I want to be a part of it. I already care about you, but now I can care about you constructively. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So this is the end of chapter 2. So, so let me just say this as, as, as I wrap it up. Let me ask you again. Do you believe in coincidences? Do you believe in coincidences? Or do you believe God is always at work in your circumstances? This is not just fancy footwork with words. It's a, it's a complete paradigm shift of the way you think. Do you believe in coincidences? This stuff happens, good or bad stuff happens? Or do you believe God is always at work in your circumstances? And, and so some of the message that's emerging from this story seems to be this. See your life as God's providence, not as random coincidence. See your life as God's providence, not as random coincidence which puts you into a whole other place of complexity. Well, then how do I make sense of all the bad things that happen to me? How do I think now about all the things that, why would God allow that to happen in me? But if you start with the, the basic premise, that basic truth from God's word, it's about God's providence, not about random coincidence. You'll be on your way to understanding the God who loves you. The God who cares about you. The God who knows your name, your story, the hairs on your head. God is writing a story in us. A story of his grace for us. Would you like to be able to read the story of your life like you get to read Naomi's or Ruth's or Boaz? I would. I would love to go, oh my gosh, yeah. Lord, let me in on that. Um, for some reason, he doesn't. Why? Because there's something better than reading the story of your life. It's living the story of your life. God is writing a better story in us by his grace. God is writing a better story in us by his grace. And the twists and turns of that, that story matter. You might be in a situation right now when uh, you feel like a statue and everybody around you is a pigeon. This is called parents. All parents feel like pigeons to their children who will feel like statues sometimes. Why are these people crapping on me? 
And that's a theological word, by the way, and I can unpack that for you later. Why do bad things happen to me if God is so great? Oh, maybe those bad things from those mean people like your parents or your employer or your best friend or the person you're dating and the person to whom you're married, maybe that feedback is because they love you so much they're actually practicing kindness by saying, I believe you're capable of this. I believe you're worth that. I believe there's more for you than what you're doing. I believe there's a better way to pursue your life than the thing that's going to do you in and you don't even know it. What do you know? I love this. You love it because that's all you know, and this is where you're taking refuge, and it's going to do you in. It's going to destroy you, and by the time you figure it out, it'll be too late. So I'm here to put a, a, a better thought that there's a bigger and better story for you. That's a hard message to give to somebody because you know they're going to push back hard on that. It's also a hard message to receive. Whoa, what's really behind this? What are you trying to get me to do? What do you want? What do you, why are you denying me? But rather, all of a sudden, we realize, no, those people were trying to write a, be write a better story in our lives. I can think of all the inter little interventions I didn't know about until I got old enough to understand it. When people would pull me aside and say, hey, can we talk about this? Yeah. Have you ever thought about that? No. Or maybe you should. Another one. Wow, I see some things in you that are really great. Have you ever thought about? Mm, no. So some of them are negative. Hey, man, stop doing that. Others positive. You have, you, could, you have so much potential. In any case, God is doing this, and he uses people to do this. This is a gift. If somebody's doing this in your life, treat it as a gift, not an annoying uh, 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 obstacle to overcome. God is writing a better story in us by his grace. It's not just a name change. There's a developer here in town named Steve Games. Um, he created a, a small company called Prudential. He sold it to another small company owned by Warren Buffett called Berkshire Hathaway. And Warren Buffett said, this is the best company I've ever bought. Steve Games uh, bought a, a, a massive part of Baja, and it had this horrible name, uh, Bahia de los Muertos, the Bay of Death. <laughs> Welcome to Darth Vader land. You know what I mean? You know, it sounds like a place you don't want to go. And so it was, uh, it was not very well cared for. It was all these people were poaching and, and just uh, you know, hanging out on it, loitering on it. And so he bought it, cleared it all out, improved it. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. He changed the name, Bahia de los Sueños. The Bay of Dreams, you know. It wasn't just a name change. He, he, he literally improved the whole place. If you went down there now, you'd go, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. It's revealed the true beauty of this place. This is what God is doing in writing this story in us. He's revealing the true beauty of his presence in us. One day it will be clear what he's doing. Right now it's enough that we embrace every circumstance knowing that God's writing his story into us and writing our story into his if you don't get anything out of this sermon, get that out of it. God is writing you into his story, and he's writing your story into his story. Neither story is random, so pay attention to your part in the plot. Neither of these stories is random. God's story is not random while well, stuff happened. Your story isn't random, stuff happened. Now, let me make a distinction for you between a story and a plot. A story is, and this happened, and that happened, and this happened, and that happened, and this happened, and that happened. A plot is significantly different because a plot is what makes a story worth listening to and pursuing. You read the book of Ruth and you're drawn into it. You didn't care before you started reading it. Once you start reading it, you go, whoa. Think of every great movie or, or, or book 
or song that you, that you respond to. There's a story in it. One of the, one of the, one of the great R&B uh, performers of all time uh, was listening to a country song, and his buddy, R&B buddy, said, why would you be listening to that music? And this guy said, the stories, man. The stories. A man named E.M. Forster, uh, one of the great novelists of all time, wrote things like Passage to India, a bunch of things that have been turned into big deal movies. He also wrote a book called Aspects of the Novel in 1943. Uh, it's worth finding this book and reading. It's a profound book. It made a big difference in my life when I read it as a graduate student. And he says that uh, it's a plot that makes a story memorable and compelling. A story is like this. The queen died. I don't care. <laughs> Big deal. A queen died. Not compelling. Interesting fact. Was that good? Was that bad? I don't know. He says a plot sounds like this. The queen died, and the king died of grief. And all of a sudden, you got me hooked. Whoa. What was it about that queen that caused the king to die of grief? Wow. I mean, when, when the wicked witch of the east died, they said, ding dong, the witch is dead. It was like a big celebration. But when the queen died, the king died of grief. You see this plot emerging? You don't know any more than that, anything more than that. But you go, I want to know more. I now care. Care about your life enough to pay attention to the plot that God is developing in it. You have mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, grandparents, aunts and uncles, friends, neighbors, mentors, teachers, coaches, therapists. I don't know who's in your network. All of them are going to be part of God's writing a better story in you. Why? Because he has a better plot in mind for you. This is the power of Ruth. This is the power of this word speaking to every one of us here. So, Lord Jesus, we pray. I pray for us. And I, and I, 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 I assume that, Lord, we can all pray collectively that we want to know that better story that you're writing. We want to participate fully in the plot that is our life. We want to experience this incredible thing that we see happening with Ruth and Naomi. We want to be the kind of people like Boaz who you use to make that happen. Lord, we want to move beyond coincidence. We want to live in the place of providence. That's our prayer today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to have an offering. An offering uh, traditionally has been a time when people bring money uh, to support the work of God. But there's so many ways that we receive money nowadays, you know, automatic uh, deductions, stocks, gifts, checks. People don't necessarily always give when they come to church anymore. Uh, but we, we still hold on to this offering time. Because it's a, it, at its heart and its core, it's about us offering ourselves to God. So we take time at every service to say, this is the offering. And if, you, if you're visiting, we don't expect you to contribute anything. If you want to contribute, uh, uh, great, you might have already contributed. The point right now, though, is, is, is over and above that. This is the time for you to say, okay, God, what are you trying to say to me today about everything I've heard, spoken, and prayed, and sung? And I want to offer myself to you. I want to open my heart and my mind to you, Lord. And you might be kind of waffling. I don't even know if I believe in the Lord. I don't know if I believe in Jesus. Well, then maybe take a step of faith and say, if you are who you say you are, Lord, convince me. I want to invite you to, to, to show me who you are. I want to learn to be a person who's alive. I want to receive your grace. I want to be a person who can say, I am forgiven of my sin. 
You have restored and reconciled me to a relationship with you. So this is a time of offering, a time of reflection and, 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 uh, and worship. So let's continue uh, worshiping the Lord as the offering of the morning is now received.
Well, did God speak to you today? Wow, what a coincidence. No, it's his providence. It's his providence. It's his providence. He loves you and wants you to know his love. He tells you the truth. He wants you to benefit from it. He calls you into community so you can feel supported and, in the best sense, held accountable to your highest and your best. Through it all, through it all, his eyes are on you. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us all, giving us everything we need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him by his grace and his abiding presence, both now and forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh